Hello, this is Russell, your friend. I'm excited to share some of my conversation with Dr. Shafali. You can have this for nothing. Dr. Shafali is a world-renowned wisdom teacher who teaches workshops and courses both online and in person around the world. Her first book, The Conscious Parent, has been endorsed by bloody Oprah Winfrey, okay? She said it's the most profound book on parenting she's ever read. I reckon you should get her books. I've read some of them. She's magnificent. This conversation is fantastic. She really describes wonderfully how your own spirituality, your own self-esteem and your own well-being will be, you, you will be, should be, can be utilized in your parenting and all of your relationships. And if you don't do the spiritual work on yourself, all your relationships are going to be a right little balls up. Listen, if you want to listen to all this conversation, get a subscription to Luminary. You can get it for $2.99 a month. Plus there's a seven day free trial to get yourself started. Visit luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial. We've got loads of good stuff and even better stuff, well, even better, bloody good stuff coming up. Ricky Gervais coming up, for example. Loads of good people are coming on. Enjoy this. Not available in all market subjects to local currency in terms of apply. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Um, I suppose, like most parents, to be honest, my motivation in talking to you was twofold. One, because you are one of the foremost experts in parenting in the global conversation, have a great social media following, and very influential, and that's good for us as a high. Pro- you're good for us as a high-profile guest, but also as a pro- as a parent, like when I've spoken to, like, say, Brené Brown or Gabor Mate, other medical professionals. My motivations are personal. What the hell should we do with our children? <laughs> it's really hard, you know, because on one level, we should all be spiritual wisdom, truth seekers, consciousness raisers of our own evolution before we become parents. And yet, it's through the parenting journey that we're afforded the greatest portal to achieve that. So it's really difficult If we are open to understand that the parenting process is the portal to understanding your own past and healing your own wounds, then you're going to really activate yourself in this journey. But most people are not open to that. They're not open to to raising their own consciousness. So then they, quote unquote, use their children as pawns just like they were used. And so continues the dysfunctional generational pattern over and over again. This doesn't mean that we don't screw our children up. My kid is royally screwed up, thanks to me. But I am using this moment, these challenging moments to really look in the mirror. And if we could do that in all relationships, but especially in this most intimate one, then we have an opportunity to keep healing. But, but what's happening on the contrary is we keep having the children, but we don't disrupt the patterns. So then we just keep having children to keep, you know, enduring the suffering. You know, the buck has to stop somewhere. And this doesn't mean we're perfect. This doesn't mean it's a destination we have to arrive at. But it does mean that we have to take this seriously and end the suffering somewhere. It's, thank you, it's commonly understood that 
we find it hard to observe our own pathology, particularly in real time. Doctor, can you give me a, an example of, of how you have perhaps in retrospect noticed how a part of your parenting has been as a result of your own trauma or need to evolve? You know, An example of where you've retrospectively gone, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't do that again. That's how I would do that in future. Oh, my goodness. It's every day. But a big theme that's uh, personal to me, which may resonate with your audience, is that I grew up in India as this Indian woman, which is a prototype of someone who is the ultimate people pleaser. And I learned to abnegate the self. You know, I learned to martyr myself. And I thought that's what it meant to be a really kind and good person. So this is my classic mold. And then on top of that, my temperament was of a very sympathetic, sensitive person, intuitive person. So put that together and you have this bleeding empath. So most of us, so just to digress, to just let other people know how they can deconstruct this for themselves. We grew up in a, in a childhood uh, culture, right? In, a, in, a, in an ambiance that gives you certain prototypes of how to get love. And so mine was, you get love this way. You get love by being disobedient, uh, self-abnegating, deprecating uh, <laughs> mess of a girl who doesn't know who she is, but you suffer You suffer the, the self, but you give to the other. The other is glorified. This was my prototype. Each one of us has a prototype of how we were taught subconsciously to receive love, to receive validation, to receive worth. And many of us mold to that very quickly, very quickly. So that's the, the fundamental prototype we are raised with. But then in addition to who we are as humans, now if had I been a rebellious kind of person, I would have ended up with a different prototype. You know, I would have rebelled. I would have become an addict maybe because I couldn't have uh, molded to that pleaser, right? So I would have gone the other way. So it depends on what our childhood ambiance was plus who we are temperamentally. And these two, the nature nurture, is, is a very key factor in observing your patterns. So, uh, so that was my pattern. And I ended up with in many relationships where my boundaries were violated. So for me, as a parent, the hardest thing that I had to really learn, and I'm still terrible at it, my daughter caught on at the age of seven, how terrible I was in creating boundaries. And she would say, oh, I just need to ask mom 10 times. And the 10th time she's going to say yes, she just learned it. And that's what happens. Our children just learn how to play us in our wounds. And the opportunity then is to see, to look in the mirror. So I began to see that I was unable to create boundaries, not because of what my child needed. Like she didn't need loose boundaries. It's because I was so inherently afraid of being seen as the bad one because I so was attached to the image of this pleasing person. So I had to really detach from that image, right? We're all married to an image. And my image was this, always say yes, but I was ruining my daughter. And I, and I have ruined her in many, quote unquote, ruined her. I have, uh, you know, wounded her in many ways, confused her in many ways by this bleeding empath desire to please. Because what's with the bleeding empath is that we say yes, yes, yes for years and decades. But man, when we say no, when we decide it's a no, we just abandon everyone. We just burn the house down, you know? So it's confusing for a child, you know? And I've had to see myself in the mirror and it was wretched at first to observe that in me, that I was so wounded 
so attached to my ego of wanting to be the pleaser that I couldn't serve my child in the way my child needed to. So that's one prototype. But there are other prototypes, you know, there's the negligent parent, there's the over obsessed with control parent, there's the power tripping parent, you know, there's all different sorts of parents. I was the pleaser parent who suffered in boundaries. And then, so we have to really deconstruct who we are based on our nature, nurture syndrome and, and be brave enough to break the pattern. You know, so I had to learn to break the pattern and let go of this desire to be the, the Mahatma, you know. I still have it though, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot from that. Um, when you talk about prototypes, it makes me wonder about archetypes and it makes me wonder about essence. I wonder how your um, siblings uh, evolved through your childhood and, and if they have comparable challenges or distinct ones. Definitely, you know, especially in heavily traditional cultures like India, where tradition is lauded, but it's actually a great suffocator of the essence. In those cultures, you know, males and females have very defined gender roles. So called man and woman, how to be a man and how to be a woman. So my brother, uh, I only have one sibling and he's male. So he was prototypically, uh, archetypally raised to be a man in that culture. And I'm sure suffered his own demons. You know, I remember my father would be so hard on him to succeed, but never hard on me. But I was told, you know, do you know how to cook? You know, how are you going to adjust in your in-laws house? So I was given different messages he was given different messages. I rebelled, though, eventually and did leave India because I knew I was suffocated in my essence and I had to leave. You know, for him, maybe he didn't leave because he wasn't suffering so much. You know, it's a it's it's advantageous to the male in those cultures, you know, but for a woman who had this also this other side to her that was rumbling of the need to discover her essence, I then had to leave. You have no choice at some point. You have to leave to discover who you are. So all of us are leaving in some way. We're always departing. Do we, how far do we abandon our authenticity is the question. You know, how many years do we abandon it till we return home to it? Where did you go and what, was there a pivotal moment that uh, made you realize that you required a kind of uh, severance from your family of origin in order to become yourself? Yeah, I think the first thing, uh, and I see this in all my clients as well, is a physical separation. You know, we need to separate in form to discover who we are in the formless. So I had to get the F out of India. So I was clamoring to leave at the age of 12. I got to get out. I got to get out. I just knew physically there needed to be separation. And it's really the process that I take my clients through too. And they're very scared to physically separate. But we have to go on a journey. So I left and came to America and went to California, to San Francisco. And then I immediately, immediately within six months, uh, went on a Vipassana meditation retreat at the age of 21. And I began to discover my formless, authentic self. So my process was immediate. I left and then I left. So I left uh, in the form and I began departing in the formless as well from mainstream culture. And then began a, a long journey of self-discovery through meditation. I mean, really, while I'm psychological in my foundation, I'm more meditative and contemplative. And that really freed me. But it still took decades to ultimately be brave enough and bold enough 
to really be my authentic self. It took years and years and years. What challenges do you face with this, um, well, superficially at least, conflicting set of ideals one around a formless one could say spirit spiritual ideals and these rather more material evidence-based procedural ideas that come from medicine even in a more um amorphous field like psychology or psychiatry this is still sort of formulated are there challenges and how do you mesh those two ideas together Yeah, so I always look at every single challenge through the form and the formless, both the lenses that I have. So I understand form, but I understand it through the lens of formlessness. I never let formlessness leave me. So for example, right now we're in this virus pandemic, right? Form, we're being attacked on the form level. Our our physical is being compromised. There is, you know, we have to have social distancing, all these form-based challenges. But really, on the formless level, nothing has changed, right? On the formless level, this is the eternal impermanence of the transience of life. Like, what's new? On the formless level, the universe is like, what's new, right? Nothing's new. The mortal is going crazy because he's realizing, she's realizing her mortality. Really, on the on the formless level, it's the it's the greatest desire of every Zen master, right? And now we're learning this, like now. So nothing has changed. So on the formless level, we are eternal. So the perturbations on the form level, I understand and I have compassion for, but with humor, no? And with a a lightness of being. So I help parents see that they're just caught up in the myopic moment and none of it really matters on the formless. And I help them detach from their egoic expectations of how this moment should be and how their child should be. Because in the grand scheme of the universe, this is a speck. And so I help parents to release their control and their control is only coming out of scarcity because they think this moment is significant and it isn't, you know. So I named my daughter Maya, which means illusion, to remind me that if I think she's mine <laughs> or this matters, it's an illusion. So to, but, but, but understanding we have form-based limitations. So I have compassion for that. But we can navigate the form so much better and easier with play if we understand formlessness. And what's missing is that people typically struggle to understand the formless elements of life, you know, and we just get obsessed with the form, the ego, the density of this moment. How many of the challenges that we face as parents and as people do you think could be ameliorated or at least improved by accessing what would once have been known as the sacred but is now difficult even to refer to and I know you use the word formless a hundred percent of human suffering is from the mental attachments to the form all our suffering is because we want things to match the form-based expectations what culture has told us is important You know, you and I were talking pre-interview about how the education system has not wanted to miss a beat and has sent curriculum home with grading systems. And I've been protesting that, saying you have to adapt. Now we're, we're truly in the formless level of education. Can we not appreciate that for a moment? Right. But people are so attached, thinking that that is a prescription. 
And we're seeing now more than ever, there is no prescription. Life is always unexpected, but we, we fossilize life because we want the illusion of certainty and grades and achievement and outcome and zip codes and, and, and the, the number of cars in your driveway somehow make us feel like we are, you know, and we get an identity from this outside, uh, these outside accoutrements. But you and I know how false that is, how deluded that is, what an illusion. And then we suffer. So when our job is taken away, we suffer. When our kid doesn't match the expectation, we suffer. But who creates the suffering? We do, because we've imposed an expectation. We have this checklist in our pocket, check, 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 check. And now we see life doesn't work like that. And if it did work like that, how sad for you, because you really thought life works like that. You know, the good child, I always talk about the, that good child, that obedient child. How sad for you if you only have good children, you know, because you really think that you're amazing and that you're doing something and you're not. You know, so I love the quote unquote bad kid because now the bad kid makes you turn on your head and, and shatter your illusions. Okay, we're going to pause this conversation there. If you want to hear the rest of it, go to luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial. There's loads of good stuff on there. And the rest of that conversation with Dr. Shvali is just magnificent. She's an incredible person. Thanks very much, you lot. Go visit Luminary. I'm Russell Brown. Cheers. I'm Skin. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Mm.